When we think Celestials, does it add more flavor? Is a lot more fun if you go with a biblically accurate angel or if you like to put those in your game rather than the uh, stereotypical beautiful person with wings? You know, I, everything we have is beautiful people with wings. That's the, that's the whole thing. Or like there's a couple like the death packed angels, a couple of little weird ones that are like kind of grim reapery feeling. But Matt Coville's books have like these these like angels that are weirdly biblically like it's a it's an abstract idea in physical form they're wild so much fun and i think that we should we should lean into the weirder shit like that in the future i would definitely agree to that actually because if we look at the biblically the biblical angels there they're not the pretty angels that we actually think that they are there some of them are pretty dang scary and we usually think of oh the beautiful person with two wings oh whereas some biblical angels freaking scary eyes all over them six wings and it's just insane like i, I want they're always I, yeah there's a reason they always enter and they say do not fear <laughs> exactly you're I absolutely right <laughs> i love using those angels in my campaigns i mean don't be afraid if you don't want me to be afraid get limbs Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode, where we continue our conversation on monsters in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. I'm Adam, and with me today are Brad and Tyler, and this episode is called Celestials, a grandiose, lethal dose of just Boros. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters is going to sit down and look at what a militant and righteous host of Celestials looks like. The angels presented in the Monster Manual are a little lackluster, and in the previous episode on Celestials, the Solar, the Planetar, and the Diva got a solid breakdown. But some general complaints about their basic natures. Did you know that Wizards of the Coast has actually built a more in-depth righteous host of NPCs led by angels and poised to be a legitimate issues for the players at your table? But before we get started, I want to ask you guys, do you think that there is enough support in 5e for the good aligned armies to even be a force against the evil aligned planes? Because we always talk about this battle between good and evil. Is there actually enough support on the good side to really go against the evil side? Let's roll dice. Good question. That's an 11 for me. Natural 20. 14. I called it. Right. I called it. Well done. You did. So before the episode started, the way. yeah, before the episode started, I told these guys that I was going to, uh, I was going to be rolling 18s to 20s, and here we go, right off the bat. It's it's not just impressive to crit; it's impressive when you call it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's some Babe Ruth shit that I'm all about. So there, there is no percentage on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> my answer for you is that uh, yes, but not in the way that you would think. Um, there need to be more bad guys than good guys in an adventure because you have to fight the bad guys. There has to be a reason for you poor sods to come up through the ranks and, and defeat the big bad guy because all the other good guys are busy doing other shit or there's no one to answer the call. So there has got to be bad. And that is why they have tucked chaotic evil far down in the corner and they actually have lawful evil holding it at bay, right? It's not your typical good versus evil it's evil versus evil and also good versus evil as well because honestly the nine hells should have taken over by now it is a fact that they're distracted by the blood war and they're fighting about celestia 
and the fact that they're immortals that keep knocking them back. Like, otherwise, Asmodeus, as powerful as he is, should have won. So there's not enough to be a straight good versus evil, but as long as their attention has been split, I feel like it's, like, we're doing okay right now. And that's that's built right into the lore. I would agree with that in the sense that it's, as you said, it's not just good versus evil. You have the other side of alignment on there too, the lawful and chaotic. The thing is, I find this is even happens in the good alignment planes as well, just as much. Um, you see them kind of not agreeing with each other. So it's not even so much about good versus evil, but sometimes it's just lawful versus chaotic, both in the nine hells and in the upper planes too. So I think you're absolutely right. It's as long as people are distracted. Yeah. Um, I did a quick query while we were answering this question as well. There are nearly five times as many monsters in the monster listing under the evil alignments than there are for good aligned creatures or monsters. That's why you have heroes to kill them. So if we're talking pure numbers, I think it's fair to say just based on numbers, there's as far as variety goes, you're not going to have as many options. But if we're actually talking about on the planes of existence, that's up to the DM to decide how you're going to balance those numbers. That's true. And how you're going to deal with an imbalance of those numbers more importantly. It's really interesting to see, at least in the Forgotten Realms campaign setting, the fact that good and law are struggling against a just naturally chaotic and evil um, and like malicious and malignant cosmos, right? As much as there are, you know, an equal number of, of upper and lower planes, the lower planes clearly have more potential to be more influential on the material plane. And it's it's very curious to see that. I don't know that we have a whole lot of other, um, at least currently in pop culture, uh, a whole lot of other cosmos or or pantheons or anything that are like that. Like there tends to be the balance of good versus evil, but the good guys are busy or they're locked up or they're not available or it's a team tends to be neutral. Like Star Trek, yeah, there's bad guys out there, but there's good guys too, just as much, right? Yeah. Like Star Wars is literally about balance. Right. So when we get to things like the Forgotten Realms, it's really cool to see the good versus evil so skewed like that. And then I feel like not enough people are just using angels as being good guys in their campaigns and unicorns as good guys. Like There's always a, a twist to it. Yeah, they always have to make them the bad guys, right? Fallen angels or corrupted unicorns is kind of the... Because yeah. we like to play tropes, right? Yeah, I think and I, our I, minds yeah. are locked in a trope of good versus evil. It, it kind of goes and along those lines too because it, we want to give our players the opportunity to see how they're going to react. Whereas when we put them in good planes, I think we've talked about this before. When we've talked about upper planes, it's just sometimes the players don't really want to go there. They want to go to these evil planes to be the heroes for good. Or... Yeah. With my players to ally with the forces of evil. I think that's just the DM's fault on that one. <laughs> <laughs> There's also kind of the idea as well that, you know, I live in a quote unquote lawful good society right now. Like we we don't have daily blood orgies out in the streets, at least not since I moved to Vancouver. Um, since Dan left the podcast. Yeah, there we go. So uh, um for the most part, most people will say, you know, I live in a pretty decent society, most Western world yeah. way. I will, would say that. And if you get into small enough groups um, around the world, they would say, yeah, you know what? This works for me. This is good. Um, you don't see that in Dungeons and Dragons. They are always putting walls around their city and putting up protection wards and magic. And, and there are bounties for 
the heads of evil creatures and like it's even to the point where terry talks about dragons like even a good aligned dragon will fucking eat you and i'm like not always but i hear what you're saying it's not entirely wrong yeah before we get any deeper into this conversation let's cut to an ad break we've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on monsters in fifth edition for all those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. And if you'd like to support us, you can donate through the website, check our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you'd like to pay for some ad space on It's a Mimic, or just shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. Before we get any further, I just want to say thank you to our latest Patreon subscriber, one Jeffrey Williams. You're a swell fella. Also later this week, we're going to be diving into The Legend of the Five Rings and Three of the Great Clans, as well as Tyler and I are going to sit down for all of our Copper Wormling tier patrons and discuss our level 8 party going up against the nastiest, most brutal and sadistic creature that can be found in a swamp in Dungeons & Dragons. But for now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, so as Brad alluded to in the intro there, um, there actually is a decent host uh, that is given to us in 5th edition that we haven't really had anything that I'm aware of that's uh, that's like this in previous editions, a thoroughly fleshed out host for law and good led by angels. That is not also directly tied to gods. And that's something that's really interesting about the conversation we're going to have today. This is a, there are gods in Ravnica, and this is the conversation we're going to have. Although I promise you, this is not a Ravnica episode. Uh, We're going to pull inspiration from one of the guilds in Ravnica for a lot of this and talk about how we can use this inspiration. But uh, I'm not going to focus too much on Ravnica. God, uh, gods are not really present in Ravnica because Ravnica is all about guilds. And uh, in Magic the Gathering, they have planeswalkers, which are beings of supreme power that can move from one plane of existence to another. So the, they act like demigods as well that actually say, hey, I'm going to impose my will upon this area um, for good or for evil. And they act essentially as gods. Um, when it comes to Ravnica itself, for those of you who don't know, if you're just checking this out, uh, first of all, go listen to our first Celestials episode. Uh, it was done a long, 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 long time ago with uh, Dan and Terry, and I believe they had a really good argument. Was it that one, or was it the Silver Dragons one, where they had a really good argument about what is what is good, the definition of good? I think that was actually in both of them. I know that they've had that argument a couple of times, and so anyway, um, we're not going to have that conversation today, uh, because we want to look at the, the Boros Legion, which is one of the ten guilds of Ravnica. The idea in Ravnica, if you don't know, is that it's um, essentially one gigantic area that is, the whole realm is surrounded by mountains all the way around, and this is one massive city that's the size of like a, a country. But like, not like the Canada or US, but like a moderately sized country. Um, and. Uh, and the entire country is a city. Now, parts of the city have fallen into ruins, so there are, like, overgrown parts and long-forgotten sewers and sections underground and whatnot. There are large inland seas in and around the city as well, so you do have more than just an urban setting. Um, but 
it is considered to be one massive city split up into a bunch of different regions. The regions all have different districts in them. And um, there is a real like metropolitan feel to it. There's, we're also missing a lot of things like dwarves don't exist in uh, Ravnica, neither do halflings. They do have minotaurs and loxodons and uh, Vettelkin. And so we got a whole bunch of new D&D playable races when the Ravnica book got published. For the record, this is one of the best books and is worth picking up for a slew of reasons. That and Eberron are probably the two best settings books that we've gotten so far in 5th edition. And uh, so I often turn to them for inspiration. So they've got all of these regions, they've got all of these districts, they've got all of these populations that are mixed together, but they're run essentially by 10 guilds that have a very recent um, and very precarious agreement called the Guild Pact. And the Guild Pact keeps the peace, essentially. It's a set of rules that says, you can do this, and I will do this, and you over there can do that. Um, these are your areas, this is your your influence in the world, this is your space in, in the government or in the hierarchy of religions and whatnot. However, if you break the peace, we are all going to evolve to devolve into a 10-sided war again, which is what Ravnica has been in the recent past. Um, there was a planeswalker that oversaw the guild pact and said, okay, good, everything's better now, great, and then fucked off to another plane and have left the guilds in charge now, right? There are a couple of interesting guilds worth talking about really quickly. One of them is the Azorius Senate, which are the lawmakers. One of them is the Orzhov Syndicate, which is the religion. Um, think of like if the Catholic Church was also the mafia, and I know that some people argue it is, but like actually like the Italian mafia, like the mob that we see in movies. There is the House Demir, which is a spy network. But the one we're going to be talking about today is the Boros Legion. And the Boros Legion are not the law makers, but the law keepers, at least in their own eyes. This is where you get your knights in shining armor that want to root out corruption, protect innocent people, and visit swift justice upon evildoers. They're the ones that keep the peace, they follow orders, and they adhere to a strict military code. This is your town guard on steroids. They don't have any time for spies or traitors and acts, um, and sorry, and they act with absolute zeal, commitment, and righteousness. They're usually good, and they're nearly always lawful. Members of the Boros Legion tend to ally themselves with other organizations and creatures who follow order and structure and have little time for the chaotic and reckless members of the population or organizations. I pulled a direct quote out of the book as well. It says, The Boros are committed to justice and order, and they are convinced that virtually every other guild is just, is just as committed to undermining both. Therefore, the Boros rely only on their comrades for support and view everyone else, everyone else with suspicion or disdain. This is such a stereotypical trope when we talk about angels and the idea of righteousness and like brad said you know the the fallen angel the corrupted angel that that knows better than everyone else and we talked about this a lot in the previous celestials episode um this is clearly a theme that the boros legion leans into most boros legionnaires succumb to the flaw of believing that might makes right and the strength of belief is more important than what you actually believe. That is super problematic, and I'm not going to um, make real-world parallels with that, but holy shit. Um, 
draw inspiration. Yeah. In recent years, the leadership of the Boros Legion has denounced that mentality, but there are still a lot of members who feel that way. This has led to, and I quote, intolerant, self-righteous warmongers who abuse their power in pursuit of their own private visions of justice. Now, I want to point out here that this is not about absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is about my sense of justice being the right one and being more important than your sense of justice. So Batman. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Boros Legionnaires that will devolve into uh, vigilantism as well. Like that is absolutely a part of this. But I don't find Batman to be a self-righteous warmonger um, for the most part. Uh, that would uh, that would be your Lex Luthers, right? So the reason that we're, we're talking about this, the reason why I want to talk about the Boros Legion is because they've got a number of angels in and among their ranks. Um, as a matter of fact, the Boros Legion is a series of mortals led by powerful angels. And the book makes a point of saying that even though everyone looks up to the angels as being the paragons of good and order, they are absolutely capable of being wrong, acting rashly, or falling to temptation. And by temptation, I don't mean succubus. I mean, hey, if all I have to do is commit this minor genocide, I could create peace all, all around, and now my justice is fulfilled, right? Like, that's the temptation we're talking about here. The guilt yeah, anything, itself... Yeah, the, the ends justify the means. Is 100%. Where they, the road they would go down. Yeah, but a lot of the time, the argument here is going to be how and why. Not, not what they're doing, but why they're doing it this way, and they they see that why is being uh, enough justification to excuse how they're doing it, right? If if the result is order and the erasure of evil, they will do whatever they need to get to that point. That's one of the major themes in my homebrew campaign right now, is I've got the goddess of death running around saying, I'm sick and tired of all of the pain and everybody's upset and miserable. I never see happiness and light and life. Everything is terrible, and at least if there's nothing, it's still and calm and quiet. And so she is trying to wipe out the universe, just because at least her sense of peace will be achieved. Is she really wrong? No, is and that's that actually that that that's a question that I'm going to be posing to my players when I hit tier four. Right? Is like legit choose a side on rebooting the the fucking world. So. Anyway, this guild, the Boros Legion, is a great example of how to run an angelic host. Even though the majority of the creatures there are soldiers, um, normally when you have an angelic host, you end up with a cult. If you've got followers of any sort, it's a cult following. Well, they'll call it a church, but it runs as a D&D cult. It, it's really just a different skin on a dragon cult or or a kraken cult, right? Because you tend to deal with... with um, with religion on a temple by temple basis in D and D, and you don't get really an overarching view of like like a, a church is whether you like it or not. There are there are rules for the S Southern Baptists, right? There are rules for the Catholic Church. There is an overall basic understanding on how um, uh, Islam works. That like we don't see that in D and D. You get the temple of this god over there has a shrine. There are an order of monks or a handful of nuns or someone running an orphanage, right? And you get it at very like street level, ground level religion. Um, but then you also have the idea of these angels leading warring factions, and you just think in your head, okay, angels. And then you look at the monster stat blocks, and you go, holy shit. They're all CR eight and above. I can't have an army. 
they'll just stomp my players. So they're in the background doing nothing, right? Like it's something I point at to say, oh yeah, over over there is a battle. Yeah, right. I like to use this though to show my players that sure, you may be level 14, but there is much bigger crap going on around you than you actually know. I agree. I like having that that level of scale where even at level 20, where you are walking around like a demigod going toe-to-toe with Orcus, you are still small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. There are progenitor gods that could snuff you out by stepping on you. And like, it's good to have that, that conversation with players every once in a while and remind them of that shit. But I really liked what Ravnica had to offer because they gave us kind of what squads would look like in an angelic host but instead of the entire host being angels the angelic host is led by an angel in the name of angels and this overall organization is not about faith and religion it's about justice zealousness and belief run by an angel who happens to be controlling it now not like it's it's like if we had a pope but there was no no religion behind it right like there's yeah, this one guy it's just a dude right so um so it, that's, it's really curious and very interesting because it means that what i can do with with what's offered in ravnica is i can pull that out and plug it in to any one of these good aligned or law aligned gods and say here we go this is everything that i need and i, I it works from the top all the way down and i have a reason to fight them Exactly. That's what one thing I love about these guys too is it it's a plug and play. Yeah. So the guild itself runs military academies, garrisons, guard houses, and it even has a flying fortress called the Parhelion Two, which is really I don't know what it is about ending the flying fortresses with Elion, but it made me think of the Avengers as well. Um, what happened to one? <laughs> you know what? It's you not in the book. Know. I'm sure that lore exists somewhere online. I typed in Parhelion and I just I went looking for pictures of Parhelion too. Um, I wasn't really thinking about one, but I did that actually for the majority of my childhood when uh, when Boba Fett was flying Slave 2, and I'm like, where's Slave 1? Slave... This yeah. is the biggest question I had between the ages of like 11 and 14 about Star Wars. So um, anyway, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that they lay out a bunch of different adventures and villains and plot hooks and stuff in the book, um, and so... Uh, I wanted to touch on them a couple of uh, times here. One of them is the Legion Garrison Adventures. So if you're a part of a garrison or you're in a garrison, because the idea here is that your players are supposed to be a part of this guild, not necessarily fight against it, but potentially be a part of it as well. But there are these garrisons. So I grabbed a D12 because it's a D12 table on page 132. I'm going to roll it here briefly. And I got a 12. See, I'm just... These brown dice that you gave me, Tyler, I'm telling you, brown dice is the answer. Rolled a 12 under D12. It's like wearing brown pants. <laughs> um, so it's the idea of uh, your adventure goal here is you have to steal the plans from the garrison for future Boros military actions. Nice. That right there is fantastic, especially because they give me a layout of what a garrison looks like, the multi-levels of it on the next page. Uh, I've got a D8 table for Boros villains, if you want to uh, go and fight them as well. I rolled a 7 on a D8. I'm telling you these dice. Um, what does it say? 
An overzealous angel has risen up against innocent people, including the soldiers in her own garrison, believing that they harbor evil in their hearts. So when we're fighting good aligned creatures, that is how you do it. And I mean, this is not breaking the mold too much. I, I am not completely blown away by these, but it is so nice to have something to just lean on in a book to say, hey, just do this. Uh, I wanted to roll a D6 for character goals if you're actually a Boros character. Uh, and a number two, uh, capture or kill an enemy chieftain who has taken responsibility for a series of brutal raids. And that makes Perfect. sense. Like an angel would come to you and tell you that. Uh, there's another adventure hook too. Um, if you want more adventures that are themed around the Boros Legion and not just a garrison, uh, I rolled a six on the D6. I'm these dice. Uh, a flying Boros fortress is about to crash, threatening to devastate the neighborhood below. I, all of this sounds absolutely amazing to me. These are fun and interesting things. And can you picture an army of angels coming down from the heavens with a flying battle fortress as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> a little intimidating. Yeah. I, this is not something that on my own I necessarily would have come up with. The idea behind the Boros Legion as well is that everything is fire, light, and radiance. Um, the the cleansing fires yeah. of of righteousness and justice. Um, and and so they a lot of the times when it comes to players, the touchstone that we have in D&D is the classes and the characters that they build, right? So you end up with um, talking about, you know, a spy network is full of rogues and bards. And this is how people think in D&D speak, right? So it's really helpful in uh, the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, because it tells us that if you are a part of an angelic host, specifically the Boros Legion, then you're going to be clerics, paladins, and uh, fighters, barbarians, and rangers also have a place in the ranks because this is a battle host. Uh, Spellcasters that get called out in the flavor text are life and light domain clerics. Um, light, of course, is all fire-based, and uh, life is your healers. Also, evocation wizards, Oath of Devotion Paladins, which makes sense with the the like commitment, and Eldritch Knights. Interestingly, most guild members that are uh, listed in this are humans, minotaurs, and goblins. But those are the ones that are the fightiest in Ravnica because we don't get orcs and dwarves and goliaths here, right? So these are the, the fighty, combative, playable races. I have an interesting thought when we're talking about the different... Um we're talking about the different classes. Do you think that the purple dragon knight could be reskinned and using as a knight in the Boros army and just kind of pump it up a little bit? Uh, I think you could. I would also say, why would you fucking bother with that piece of shit? I, that is the worst damn class in the subclass. In the That's why I want to make it better. <laughs> yeah, you'd, ha you'd have to make it better. You'd have to, to boost it up. Um, honestly, if you want to be a purple dragon knight, you should um, be a College of uh, Eloquence Bard with a uh, sword and shield. Yeah, you should. It's probably worth touching as well, um, just in this, on the uh, guild-specific uh, spells. Yes, the, the spells themselves are... Now, the spells themselves... That'll, that'll be worked into a title in the future, I'll tell you right now. Um, <laughs> the, the spells themselves... Uh, are all very fire. Uh, like you do get things yeah. like light and um, heroism is in there, but this is, bolt. yeah, this is Aid. fire and radiance, right? And 
you get to add these to your spell list as well if you choose to be a Boros Legion um, player. If you're going to be a player that wants to like be a part of an angelic host and this is how you want to do it, I talk to your DM and don't be surprised if they don't beef up uh, your spell list with this. Um, well, I absolutely would because it like it's part of your backstory and your background. Yeah, it might create an imbalance at the table if other people are not also choosing spellcasters from Ravnica who get expanded spell lists from this. Have that conversation with your party during session zero during character creation, or at the very least with your DM. Yeah. Now to flesh out the rest of the host before we get to the angels, here's everything else that um this host is supposed to have. These are kind of the an example of what other creatures are going to be the minions and allies. Because remember, every angel we talk about today is supposed to be leading a force. So you have Mastiffs, Azures, any sort of Knights or Veteran stat blocks, Guardian Giants. Um, I think Megan and Casey covered these in their Giant series. Knights that fly and ride on rocks, the, the giant birds, but... They're not quite as huge. Uh, like they're large size rocks in Ravnica. I like that they just call them Sky Knights. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> that fun. That's cool. Yeah. Um, also, way, way, way later, after the monster stats, you get um, like guild NPC stats, but they're a little bit more generic. So the idea is that you would plug in whatever sort of race or character name or whatever into these stat blocks. Um, they give you a generic soldier, one that just any guild can use. Um, and this is supposed to be your basic foot soldier. They're CR half with an AC of 18. That's with the shield. It's worth pointing out because they have a long sword as well. So if they drop the shield and they get AC 16, they can do 1d10 damage instead of 1d8. They only have 16 hit points, but at CR half with a with an AC of 18, they're still going to last a couple of rounds. Like even in tier two and three, you'll get kills right away. But these guys come in a squad. The action economy is working against you, and you and might you not get the, uh, that that uh, sixteen damage on your offhanded or second hit, right? And yeah, these guys come in groups. They're they're supposed to be your basic foot soldiers. Um, beside so them, you, you also fodder. yeah, and that's just it. Like the angel is supposed to be there as like the presence on the battlefield, the the NPC you're talking to. But they show up with a squad of sixteen of these guys. They also will probably have a medic with them. And we do get the frontline medic, which is phenomenal. I love I love that we get medic stat blocks. Um, yeah. CR quarter, they get an AC of 20 with the shield, which is phenomenal. Um, 19 hit points, so they're squishy if you can hit them. They have a spear, but, I mean, they're not going to use it. It's their six spell slots that are set aside for healing magic and the inclusion of spare the dying that are noteworthy. Yeah, massive. Right, that's going to be if you have a couple of medics, even if you knock the, an angel down, they'll be able to get that angel back up again immediately, like on the next turn, exactly. Or it, they might not even go down with like spare the dying, yeah, exactly. We have, um, uh, also a reckoner stat block as well. These guys are CR4, they've got an AC of 18, um, and they've got 8d8 plus 16 hit points, so they're meant to be there for a little while. It's got a whole bunch of lightning and thunder themed spells, and being able to cast lightning bolt twice is pretty good, especially at CR4. Uh, but it's the reaction that lets the Reckoner do half the damage that it just received back to the attacker in lightning damage. So if you hit them for 22 damage, you take 11 lightning damage back. But here's the thing 
They don't have to hit with it. There's no roll for it. There's it no happens. There's no range limit. There's no number of times per rest limit. There's uh, no maximum damage. It's just their reaction. So they'll do it once per turn. So it recharges on five or six, though. Okay. Right, but can you imagine dropping meteor swarm on a on a squad of twenty of these guys? Yeah. Every one of them is going to hit that wizard back. Bam, 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 bam. The lightning coming out of them is going to be crazy. I'm going to set these guys aside for my tier three and tier four party when they have the area of effect spells because that is going to drop a fucking like sweet storm hits and and they're much scarier in numbers. Much scarier in numbers. Yeah, yeah. You know, tier three, four is when you can drop a few of these guys and have that really pack a punch. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about these. Uh, And then after that, you get CR seven. These are called uh, a fire fist. They're essentially just a fire themed paladin that uses a great sword. Um, and has 18 D8 plus 26 hit points. There's some healing spells here, but its focus is going to be Wall of Fire, Flame Strike, Guiding Bolt, and Scorching Ray. Um, although I would keep one of these guys in my back pocket, though, because they've got Revivify as well. I was just about to say that. The other one that stood out to me, too, is they've got Banishment as well, which is not to be scoffed at. Your players are not going to be ready for that from a good paladin. Yeah, and so... And the idea of these guys coming in and just commanding an area, even though CR7, two or three of these guys is going to make a a tier three party stop and have to actually deal with this shit. And that's kind of the big thing that I wanted to point out here is that we have built an army now. This is, uh, whether it's in small squads or there are like larger battalions of these guys, whereas the monster manual angels tend to have um, the ability to come in solo and be just that one angel you deal with. The angels we're talking about today come with minions. They come as a force, and they're there to be able to slap your players to knock them down a peg when they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or to create conflict. And that's the main thing about angels and celestials, is that we are supposed to have conflict be a part of every part of this game, because that's what encounters are, coming like overcoming uh, conflict. How do you do that with paragons of good and and law? And this is how you make them be the the law keepers, the keepers of order, and the ones that say, "Hey, stay where you are and and, and don't do a thing. We will handle this." That's going to drive your players nuts because even just taking agency away from players is enough to to set them off. Um, the other thing that I think is worth uh, mentioning as well is how many. And I'm going to pose this to you guys. Actually, I want to know. How many times have your guys killed a humanoid and actually been brought up on charges of murder? It depends with at least my crew where they were and anyone saw them. Yeah, and I mean, at least arraign them on charges, but often they'll probably plead the self-defense uh, clause. I, I find have, that... Sorry, go ahead, Tyler. I was going to say, I have put them in a city before where the law was already very skewed, Monty Python-ish. And they killed somebody and they were on trial, but it was ridiculous, ridiculous laws that they used to try and accuse them. But then they were all attacked by zombies. So it didn't really matter. Yeah, there's always that uh, day's ex machina to get them out, right? So exactly. I'm uh, I, I'm sitting here going, you know, for the number of orcs and goblins that considering these are playable races, that these are characters that people can interact with, the amount of them that have been slaughtered in D&D games. And, and it never comes up as something unlawful. It's just wild to me. Now, these angels will probably 
I don't think any of the angels we're talking about today have the ability to scry or divine necessarily, but you have to assume that their higher ups do, that they're going to be tasked with, um, look, they have access to magic. They understand that divine magic exists and they have the ability to um, tap into this magic as well. They've got to be able to reach out and, and get a sense of what's going on. Can you imagine living in a society where um, there is no defense? Like they automatically magically know if you committed a crime and the only comment that you have on it is just justifying why you did it, not whether or not you did it. These angels are absolutely terrifying if you start to think about this dystopian big brother is watching kind of feel it, it's what, a police state what was that movie sure. that the the, the the three the three could minority uh, report yeah that's right minority report that's very much what this would be um let's grab dice because i have some questions yay a five seven i got a, a six tyler what'd you get seven you're going first of the seven tyler Congratulations. Wow. five six seven all right so if we think about the angelic host and what the Boros Legion has kind of given us and taught us about the themes and whatnot, do you have a quest that you could think of, a little inspiration for what kind of adventure, whether it's a one-shot or a campaign or a side quest, something that you can think of to uh, to utilize these angels? I think what I would want to use for a quest for these with um, that the angels would be kind of giving to you is go to this town. Something is happening there. I need, we need you guys, we're stretched thin. We need you to be bringing it under order. So you're kind of a, a subsidiary of them. You're not part of the the Legion. You're just, they're hiring you out to help them. Again, I would want to make this super simple because I don't want to, I don't want to make it too heavy just yet on them. Uh, this is something I'd want to bring like low levels in just so they kind of get a feel for it. I, I really like that. Um, my big thing as well, I it would be so easy to have this be a quest giver early on, like have an angel be a quest giver early on, then to discover that what you've been doing has been harming other people all in the name of justice, right? Pulling the rug out from underneath your players because you have uh, you've been working with angels, with the good guys. And a lot of people at high levels, when they have the power, they'll look at angels and go, uh, I wonder what their motivations really are. Should we be doing this? But when you're level one or two and an angel shows up, it's like, hey, I need you to go over there and help these people. Yes, sir. In the name of law, will you go do this? Like you say yes. And you can actually build up one of these um, angels, especially if they come with a force of guards with them or soldiers like that are that are showing up. If a medic shows up with them and helps someone who's hurt, they're going to look like the good guys. They may Absolutely. be presenting themselves as the good guys. And that's uh, that's another way of doing this because, I again, the trope is that you come across the angel and he's already corrupted. And what what if we what if we slow roll that? Brad, do you have a, a quest idea or a plot hook? Yeah, um, I'm thinking more from why is a legion of lawfully good, powerful angels, what need do they have? For your party of murder hobos, right? Um, and so my thought is, you, you say that they don't have time for infiltration. They don't really take time for any sort of subtlety. But if there's some uh, infighting amongst, uh, you know, different groups within the Boros, 
Perhaps they need somebody who can work their way in and get the information that they need to prove that something's going on. Uh, basically, there's dissension within the ranks. Oh, your job is to get in. You're sent in as internal affairs. Exactly. They need somebody who's not from inside, who's going to draw a lot of attention. Basically, go in, pretend you're going to work for them, you're looking for work, and see if you can find the information that we really need to shut down this rogue group. That's that's really interesting. I like that. Um, Tyler, do you have any dynamics there? Yeah. Tyler, do you have any ideas about how you would role play with uh, an angel from the Boros Legion? Oh, there's so many different kinds. There's so many of them. They're all so different. But I think one of the biggest things I'd want to focus on when role playing these guys is this idea of they are going by their sense of good, what they perceive as good. Again, we're not going to get into the subject of what is good, what is not good. No, but we want to really play into that for the role-playing aspect that these guys 100% believe that they are lawful and good, or at least the very least lawful. What they're doing is to the letter of the law and even beyond. So that's how I'd want to be role-playing them. And I wouldn't want to go so far as to say lawful stupid. No. No, they're not that. They're, but they are very much on the lawful side of things and role-playing from that aspect and every decision they make goes with that in consideration. I would also say, if I'm going to role-play an angel, and I've started doing this, although I don't think my players have picked this up yet, is angels always um, state fact, and if they have a question, they only ever ask yes or no questions. I try not to let them have opinions, and I try not to have open-ended questions. If it is something where where I've asked for a yes or no question, I start to get an explanation from my players um, that's not yes or no. They try to justify or explain or excuse themselves. I will stop them and say yes or no. You were there on the night of yes or no. You saw Maybe. this happen. Yes or no, right? And I'm not going to give them... I want that black and white view of the world, especially with the Boros Legion. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. And really, normally I don't encourage tropism, but I feel like these really have to play into the trope of the city guard, of, but in a righteous sense of they are they know that they are in the right. Mm-hmm. They will not be convinced otherwise, right? These guys are fanatics, really, is probably the better way of describing them. They are committed to the cause. They believe in what they're doing is right. They will not be swayed and they will not put up with any sort of contradiction. When it comes to exploration or clues that they've been there or a little bit of foreshadowing that you may run into one of these guys. Tyler, do you have any ideas about how you would incorporate angels on the exploration pillar? Uh, So I'll just go right into it then. Um, I think one thing when we are thinking of this kind of group uh, the Boros in general, actually, I would I would want to be thinking of they're in a group. You're never going to find just one or maybe two. You're going to find them as a group, especially this whole the whole leaders. If there's an angel there, you're going to find several people there. So think of an action economy. Yeah, the action economy is key, especially when you're moving. You're going to hear the the greaves, you know, the the metal boots clomping down the, the alleyway before you see anyone right or if you're uh, out in the wilderness you're going to see a massive amount of footprints yes you're also i really like the idea of um introducing the angel for the first time as having the soldiers show up first yes and just stop in formation stare ahead and not say a damned word 
And then like 30 seconds later, an angel lands and the angel speaks for them. But you introduce the minions first and have them waiting on orders. That is going to leave a a solid impression on your players so that every time that they hear anybody clomping along in formation or they see a lineup of soldiers waiting, they know there's an angel nearby. Yeah, I'm imagining if you aren't, if you're on the trail of these guys or you're following in their wake, the big clues and signs, there's going to be scorch marks everywhere, right? There's going to be ash all over the place. And those who are left surviving, probably those who are deemed worthy, are going to be terrified. And they're going to speak probably of the righteous cleansing fire, right? Because you can imagine if these guys swing through eliminating evil, no matter what side of that you're on, if you're just common folk and you see these guys swing through, it's going to be horrifying. So the accounts that you're going to get from the people left behind are going to be you know, what's of people who are afraid of the righteous fire. What What's interesting with this one in particular, because it's not linked to a deity, is you're not going to have that weird, like, do you, you guys remember in the movie 300 where they took all of the villagers and strung them all up into a tree to make this horrible, like, limb tree and stuff? Like, yeah. there's weird, like, death rites to, to cults and zealots and fanatics, right? There's, you know, w- normally you would see, oh, an angel came through and cleansed the place, and so there are these scorch marks on the ground, and in the middle of each one, there's a skeleton with its hands crossed over its chest right a blackened skeleton that's been you know you've died in the name of my god so i i lay you to rest in this specific way you don't yeah. get that you with the you won't like. have that from here no it's it's purely business it absolutely is and like that level of business where if you die screaming well i guess you shouldn't have broken the law even the medics are not giving last rites right and that's it's something that's what you don't normally see with angels. And I really like this angelic host that is not led by a deity. Um, when it comes to combat, Tyler, let's talk for a moment about how how a host with no deity and the self-righteousness would approach combat. Honestly, I believe it would be in mass number. They're not going to rely necessarily on one or uh, one deity to come down and save them. No, they are going to take matters into their own hands especially if they're being led by angels. Depending on which angel is leading them, the angel might be forefront and they're all fighting alongside with them or the angel's commanding them and they're all going forward. You're not facing one or two people at a time here. This is the host that you're facing off against. And you mentioned all the different, all the different, I guess, creatures and all the different stat blocks of the things that they could be up against. They're coming all at once. They're not going to say, okay, send that one. Okay, send that one now. Let's see how they do. No, it's everyone at once. And uh, you, you better be ready for it. I'm also going to move all of them in the same initiative, right? Like, yeah, maybe the angel will go before the foot soldiers or immediately after the foot soldiers, but they're going to move whatever the soldiers are. If they're fire, first, fire fists or reckoners or paladins or soldiers, whatever they are, they're going to move as a cohesive unit then they will surround and overwhelm. There's no no subtlety here. Overwhelming odds is a guaranteed quick victory. So always use overwhelming odds if you can. Agreed. The the only exception to that is, as we mentioned, there is the occasional one who will feel like the laws aren't going far enough and they need to seek vengeance on perhaps a particular enemy of theirs. Um, But I I think even then, they're flying their banners and they're declaring... I dislike what you are doing and I'm coming oh, for you. 
Absolutely, but they're coming in single-handedly and they're coming in hard and fast again. Everything is going to be hard and fast. These guys are the true essence of shock troopers, right? They come in, they hit hard, they wipe out what they came to wipe out with excessive force, and then they move on. And I also don't think that honor is a factor here. There's no, no you know, let our army stand down and let's duel this out ourselves. It, it, They would just have, like, all right, the man that brings me his head will will get a commendation. Everyone to war. Right, they like want swift action. Exactly, and there's there's not going to be showdowns. There's going to be uh, cleansings, right? Yeah. And that's really how to how to. Look. There will not be an opportunity to plead your case. They are judge, jury, executioner in that moment. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness from these troops. I want I want you to know that every time that I have typed judge, jury, I always want to type judge Judy, judge Judy every fucking time. Like it's <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about the angels themselves now, because we've spoken a lot about the Boros Legion and about um, angelic hosts. But let's look at what these angels are that are leading it, because we've covered in the past uh, Devas, Planetars, Solars, and um, and Imperions. The Imperions are not really a part of this conversation when it comes to the Boros Legion, uh, but fuck, wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, Imperions are like hybrids; they're titans; they're they're the spawn of deities. That's why they're not a part of this conversation. But uh, the first one that we're given uh, in alphabetical order, anyway, is the Battle Force Angel. And they are CR5 uh, right off the bat. The thing about the Battle Force Angel is the fact that uh, you only get like a paragraph about them, but it's worth pointing out that Boros Angels, in the first place, they keep using the word zeal over and over and over again. But I mean, they're, they're so dedicated, they're so committed. Um, and they don't have to breathe, uh, they don't have to eat or drink, they don't have to sleep, so they just keep coming. They are in uh, just a force of nature, and I think they would recognize that their their soldiers do need these things, um, but it's not going to stop them. If they have the opportunity to move ahead, to do a thing, to to strike out on their own, I think they would do it and then return to their soldiers you know, pretty quickly. They're not really all about the idea of goodness and wisdom and mercy, although people kind of assume that they are. Uh, they can be driven by political machination. Um, they can be compromised in certain ways. Uh, but when it comes to the Battle Force Angels specifically, these are the radiant hosts that soar into combat. They embody the zealousness of the of the Boros Legion completely. They get right into battle so they can have uh, a hands-on approach to leading the soldiers on the front line and so that they're able to adapt and I don't want to say micromanage, but get right there to to see, okay, our forces need to move forward on the on the right and watch out for the left flank. And like they are in the thick of it. They're front line commanders. Yeah. They're also going to ignore pain, horror, confusion of battle. And they're going to hone in on their objectives. They will never, ever, ever retreat. For stats, we get lawful good, but I mean, that always comes with an asterisk, right? That's what these episodes are about. Um, armor class is 18. They don't get a shield. That's all plate mail. Um, they've got 12d8 plus 12 hit points, which is averages out at 66. So for CR5, they're not super beefy, but they're pretty average on this. 
it's the fact that they're going to come with others with minions that's going to make them scarier that's going to make them hit outside their weight class they've got a speed of 30 feet but they fly at 90 feet which is phenomenal pretty high strength pretty high wisdom pretty good charisma everything else is a 11 or higher so they get a boost to wisdom and charisma saves because you're not going to charm exhaust frighten these guys and in fact, they're immune to all of those conditions. Um, they're also resistant to fire and radiant. Their perception gets a plus six and uh, their investigation a plus three because they are there to manage a situation. With dark vision out to 160 feet, true sight, or sorry, 120 feet, true sight to 120 feet, and a passive percep perception of 16, uh, they see what's going on. They're not fooled by your fucking illusions. They know what's happening, and they see you. The 90 feet of uh, fly speed is insane, especially because they get flyby attacks. Uh, they don't provoke opportunity attacks when they fly out of enemy's reach. So they can move faster than you can running, uh, hit you, and then get out of range again, at least at a range of melee. Uh, the angel also uh, has advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. So that has the magic resistance. Um, which means you're not going to be able to do all of your illusion and enchantment shit with the with the bonuses to wisdom and charisma saves as well as advantage. This is a fight. You have to fight them. You're not going to to sway them or to turn them. Friends is not going to work here. Um, they do get two melee attacks as part of their multi attack, um, and they get to use what's called battlefield inspiration. When it comes to their multi attack, it's a plus six to hit. Five-foot reach uh, with the long sword, you know, the 1d8 or the 1d10, depending on if you're one-handed or two-handed. There's no reason for you to not be two-handed because you're not carrying a shield on this. But it also does 48 radiant damage. And if the target is within five feet of any of the angel's allies, they take an extra 1d4 radiant damage as well. So I assume that's not cumulative. What, what do you like mean? If there's multiple allies within five feet. No, it says it's not any be like one d four per ally. It's just if there's any ally, it's one d four. No, it's pretty specific. The wording you would see would be um, uh, it would say for each of the allies within, but because yeah. it says any of the angels' allies, that's the specific wording. Uh, yeah, that doesn't stack up. So, but still, one d eight or one d ten plus four d eight plus potentially a one d four. That's a lot of dice you're rolling for challenge rating five, right? And again, clearly, this is not pack tactics, but I mean, you're supposed to be with allies. Yeah. Also, the other thing they do is Battlefield Inspiration, which they can do as part of their multi-attack every turn, uh, where the angel chooses up to three creatures it can see within 30 feet of it. And until the end of the angel's next turn, all of them get a D4 to attack rolls and saving throws. So it's almost like a blessing. Yeah, you get it every turn. There's no resource cost. It's just, boom, every round, three people get it. Yeah, you're there. It's inspiring your guys. So, let's uh, let's roll dice again. I want to talk about these guys. Uh, 14. Nat 20 for me. Oh, shit. Tyler is muted. I glitched again. I can't unmute. <laughs> <laughs> he is unable to unmute. Tyler, when you come back, you should not play with the mute button anymore. He can hear you just us. Leave yourself, leave yourself unmuted. Yeah. Tyler, what'd you get so that we can at least babble? Type it in. You got a three. Fuck. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're first, Brad, so... Uh, let's talk until Tyler's mic symbol comes back. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> the next, the next four and a half hours, just you and I talking while we're yeah, we're just continuously stalling. 
is there a good quest that you can think of for one of these battle force angels? Uh, I mean, these guys are pretty straightforward, right? They, they've got one job and they do it very well. Um, the quest, honestly, is going to be a quest of recruitment, right? They need numbers. They've been caught. Maybe they've been caught behind enemy lines or they've been separated from their force. They come across you and your party and say, hey, help me in my quest to get back to my force and help me deal with whatever sinners we may cross along the way. Yeah, you'll notice that there's no um, healing involved for this angel. No, none. Uh, and so that's kind of an indication as well that I think you would run across injured ones in the wake of a battle, right? For, for sure. They're, they're in the battle. They're for sure going to be taking a hit or two. Absolutely. When you, and I think they, they may win the battle, but then sit there among all of the bodies afterwards, the last person standing, and they're just sitting there with their eyes closed, just breathing because they've got three hit points left going, holy shit. Barely survived that one. Yeah, I got to get back to town. And if your players come across, see, this is my this is my plot hook, is your players come across a, a fresh battlefield with one battle force angel who immediately, like, wavering on their feet, points a flaming sword at you and says, what side are you on? Right. Yeah, you're gonna get one shot at this, right? And you're gonna either be conscripted or they will try to kill you on the spot. And no, injured enough, yeah. you could probably take them down without much trouble. But uh yeah, this is this is how I would kick off a campaign too. That's a really yeah. good way of starting a campaign. Oh, absolutely. Tyler. That's what, that's actually what exactly what I was thinking for a quest is this is the start of a campaign that you are actually in the middle of a battle. You may not even been part of the battle to begin with but it made your way to where the characters are and this angel comes over and conscripts you to fighting and because of their inspiration that they have you guys are in it's that's how the campaign starts you inspired to fight to to start this and then the battle ends maybe you're captured or maybe the you're the last ones left and this and then the battle angel just says to you carry on what this was and then your campaign begins i really like this um uh, this is a very simple and straightforward kind of angel there's not a whole lot of depth and complexity here at face value but do you have any insights about role-playing one of these guys brad it's it's gonna be more of that blusterous they're they're commanders right they're used to being obeyed they're used to telling others what to do and being in control so i think the most interesting way to role play this is to put this guy against your party's paladin right the guy who's a frontliner on for the party, the face of the party, who's usually giving out commands, and put them head to head. Maybe put a little bit of conflict between uh, the two "quote unquote" paladins and see who can come out on top and battle. Will Re remember when it comes to these guys, especially when, when you're dealing with players and this specific angel, that is likely to devolve into combat pretty damn quickly. And just to keep an eye on balance, remember the CR. The challenge rating that monsters have that we get in monster and NPC stat blocks is based on, is this a deadly encounter for a multiple person, like four or five person party at this level? Yeah. So the point is, this is a deadly encounter, or at least one person could drop if they go toe to toe, if the party goes toe to toe with this guy before level five, so CR five. Which means that if you're going to have the paladin, you know, go toe to toe with them, paladin should probably still be level like eight or nine before. Or yeah, before they they get into this shit. So um, 
I I think that this for role playing is um again so simple straightforward. This guy makes demands. He makes declarations and demands and needs to know the truth about the matter and he doesn't give a shit about any of the other details. You are wasting my time and yours by explaining why. Just tell me what happened. You're with me or you're against me. Tell me which one now so I know that I can kill you or leave you be. Exactly. Yeah, you or you. The yeah. law the law you broke does not care about how hungry you were. Yeah. I also like the idea of these guys aren't going to talk a lot in general. They're only going to use like one word or maybe a very simple sentence. They're not you're not going to hear a monologue from these guys. It's going to be a let's go. Attack. It they're directing where to go and commanding. Very straightforward as you said and very simplistic. Super so simplistic that anyone could understand i also feel like um they do have like this battlefield inspiration is the thing they can do but these are war cries they're they're acts of slamming a uh the hilt of a sword against a shield to make noise like it is this kind of indication to their soldiers that i am here we're fighting we can do this let's go right it's not a this is not a william wallace speech before you get into battle right Oh, no, this no, is, this is in the moment. One thing I really like about it, too, is notice under languages, it says all. I was I was about to bring that up, too. And it's interesting because a lot of the times that means that you can role play a lot of different ways or it's a highly intelligent creature. This guy's intelligence is 11. He gets a plus zero. That language is all. I think matters more with their perception plus six and their true sight to 120 feet because they will know what you're saying. If you lapse into Minotaur and say something to one of the other party members, or you're using Thieves Cant, they fucking know what you're saying. Yeah. Right? Languages, that includes Druidcraft. Like, they mm-hmm. fucking know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, one thing I really like, though, when you say the battle cry, it's like, they say several things, but each thing they say is the same word in a different language to everyone in in the in in the war party. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I like that. Um, Brad, do you have any ideas about exploration or clues about you know one of these guys being nearby? I, they're going to let you know that they're nearby. <laughs> You're, yeah. they're not hiding. They're not afraid of you. They're not sneaking. Right? They're there, or the evidence of them being there is very obvious. When, right when Vecna shows up and looks at one of these guys, he is not running away. He's going to look at Vecna square in the eye and say. Yeah, I see you've come to the battlefield. This must mean you're desperate. He's going to turn to a soldier and say, "Retreat!" <laughs> Tell the general that that Vecna's here, and then he's going to step forward and fight. To and the he's going to stand forward and take the rest so that the rest of them can retreat and get the word out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is that that's as close to honor as it's going to be. But again, it's not about honor. It's about accomplishing the, job the appropriate task. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You'll find a couple of these guys just impaled on the battlefield because they did not. No one stepped down. Um, one of the things that I really like about the art in uh, Ravnica is that all of the uh, Celestials have glowing eyes. Yes. All of the angels, like, their eyes are just, like, imbued with power and radiance. And, I mean, they're not, like, Cyclops. They're not lighting up the area. But I do like the idea of these guys being strangely otherworldly. And when they're sitting there talking to the entire party, you don't know who they're looking at. And I think that that's a neat thing to to think about when you are interacting with these guys, because they will come right up to you and they will say, you know, did you see this? And it's not clear which one of you they're talking to. I don't think they even care which one they're talking to. They're, 
they're going to talk to a group, right? They're used to dealing with troops and forces. They don't deal on individual basis. I also think that that's probably a good tactic for them. What they're, again, because of true sight and dark vision, and they can speak all languages, they know what the deal is. And they are used to getting down to the, you know, root of an issue, which is why they've got a bonus to investigation and perception. So this is, it's not necessarily insight, but I think it's a great tactic to say, I mean, I used to do this when I was teaching acting classes and the kids were were screwing around. I would let them hang each other on that and be like, hey, which one of you did this? And I wouldn't even look at them. I would just wait and then turn around and look at them because you're going to see the guilty party. You're going to let them all sit there and stew about it for a moment. And then the guilty party will make themselves known. Um, and honestly, Dungeons and Dragons players are the same as like seven-year-olds in an acting class. So that's uh, a little less sophisticated. I was about to say less mature. <laughs> um, Tyler, do you have any uh, ideas about exploration for these guys? Uh, yeah, one thing I am thinking of, and this is if you're in battle and these things are on your side, I'm thinking of how do you know where these things are going to be? You know, it, it has... It is you're looking for this angel, but it is going to be front and center in the battle. And it's going to be going against the heaviest hitting thing in order to accomplish the goals, but also protect the troops. I'm again, I'm coming from the idea of rather than you looking at clues as to where they are, it's more so you're looking for clues as you're part of the battle. Where are these guys, whether you're against them or they're on your side? It's where the most action is going to be. That's where they are. Which brings me to my last question before we move on to the next one. Um, combat. We're talking like it's Battle Force Angel. It's in the name. Brad, what do you got for combat for these guys? What's a tactic that, that stands out to you? Um, right. Yeah, combat with these guys. Uh, the biggest thing is that battlefield inspiration, right? You want to make sure that they're, they're side by side with at least one ally at all times, uh, giving them that bonus D4 and then getting the bonus damage on an attack, right? They're going to be using flanking rules. They're going to be in the combat. That said, you want to make good use of this flyby ability as well, right? Flying in, make basically they're going to command the troops in, shouting orders where they're going to be going, flying in, making that hit, getting the bonus damage, giving the inspiration, and then getting up above the battlefield. Not even so much to avoid attacks, but more because I think they do a better job of directing their troops when they have a bird's eye view. I like the idea of them... I'm going to move all of the forces at once in initiative, right? With They do need to feel like one cohesive unit. So let's say there's six soldiers uh, and a battle force angel. I, this is still a CR6 fight, right? So... I would have the Battle Force Angel start the, start the turn swooping down, hitting twice, crying out with some sort of war cry, which will then give everybody else a D4 on their attack rolls and saving throws until the next turn, and then flying out of range again. And it's this dive bombing, swooping, and inspiring over and over again that is so that is so deadly here. Yeah, the, the uh, stat block yeah. really plays to it. It's pretty clear what their role is in this combat. Yeah, Absolutely. but you have to have initiative line up, right? Like, you don't want the soldiers to go first. And so I feel like they would hold their reaction or hold their action until the angel does their thing, right? So that's why I say having them choose where their initiative is or having them all act together as one initiative uh, makes them far scarier. It really does. Uh, I much have the same for combat is this dive bombing technique. But and it might seem like, oh, that's just silly because they want to be in the heat of battle. How long is a turn? It's six seconds. 
It's going to be every six seconds, this thing's dive bombing on you. That's not a long time. That's a very short amount of time. And in the t- same time, inspiring the troops and going, this thing's continually moving. 90 feet over and over and over again with two attacks. Yeah. And, like, that. that's... This thing is fast. And also think that they have two attacks. It doesn't mean both attacks are used on the same person. That's right. It's a flyby. They're hitting one person, then they're flying by, hitting another person, get inspiring the troops, getting up out of reach, swooping down again, another two attacks. Maybe it's the same two, maybe it's two different ones. This guy's moving. He's, as you said, 90 feet holding. Yeah, you, your back row casters are not in the back row anymore. At least the back row doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> Um, so that wraps us on the, on the battle force angel. What else do we have? Uh, I'm up next. I'm carrying the fire main angel. So the fire main angels, I mean, the name does a pretty good job of describing what they look like. Um, they're generally red. I like that it says they typically have red hair as if you're going to have any exceptions to this rule. Um, the cool thing though, is in the heat of battle, their hair can actually ignite transforming into a main of flames. And it's the name fire main cascading over its shoulders and down its back. So you can picture these things in battle, just effectively like a barbarian rage shouting, and their hair just ignites into this giant ball of flame down the back of them. I, I have a question for you, Brad, before you go any further. Um, do you think that angels have body hair? Like, are you going to see smoke? <laughs> uh, that is completely up to the DM's discretion. I'm not going to say either way how you want to. That is a... That is a- that is a brand new meaning for fire crotch, and I love it. Oh. <laughs> Does the carpet match the drapes? It burns! Um, <laughs> Anyways, let's, let's back to the angel. Um, so as far as the battlefield's concerned, these guys are holy champions and paragons of war. Um, basically, they seek out the mightiest foe in a combat and take them on head-to-head and trust that their soldiers are going to handle everything else. So they seek out the biggest, baddest thing on the battlefield, say, you, here, now, and they fight that one on one while their troops do the rest. Um, as far as the stat block for these things goes, they are listed as chaotic good. So these guys are not lawful. They are actually chaotic. A little bit of a separation from what we've been dealing with with the Boro so far. Uh, they have an AC of 18, 18d8 plus 54 hit points. That's an average of about 135. They've got a 40 fit movement speed and a fly speed, get this, 120 feet. We thought 90 feet was fast with the Battle Force Angels. These guys are 120 foot fly speed. Um, as far as stats go, their strength is absolutely through the roof at a 22. Um, that is their primary stat. Oh, sorry, that is not their primary stat because their charisma is actually one point higher at 23. So strength and charisma are their main stats here, but they've got a positive modifier in all of them, including a plus three in constitution. So like these guys are incredibly statted out across the board. Uh, saving throws, they are proficient in strength, wisdom, and charisma saving throws with absolutely massive numbers on all three of those. Um, unlike the Battle Force Angel, instead of investigation, they are proficient in insight and then also perception like the Battle Force. So you were talking earlier, Adam, about uh playing it with insight right knowing the intentions of what's going on well these these are the guys who are truly insightful and reading your mind reading what you're thinking um they're resistant to fire radiant bludgeoning piercing and slashing from non-magical attacks interesting that's only resistant to fire and not completely immune uh, given the fact that they are literally on fire in battle at times um but as far as immunities go they're immune to the charmed effect exhaustion and frightened they have true sight up to 120 feet and just like the Battle Force Angel, they 
are proficient with all languages. So they know no matter what you speak, they're going to hear you. So all those stats around them out to a CR12. It's interesting that they don't have dark vision. No, no dark vision on these guys. Uh, interesting. But do they really need it with 120 feet true sight? Yeah, not really. Um, much like the Battle Force Angels, they have the flyby ability. So again, that's the ability where they don't provoke uh, opportunity attacks when it's flying away. They do have innate spell casting. Um, they are charisma casters. Uh, three times a day, they can cast a combination of either compelled duel or guiding bolt at fifth level. Oh, and one, yeah, at fifth level. So level that right up. And then once a day, they can cast. Oh, sorry, that's three times a day each for a compelled duel, and three times a day each for guiding bolt. So that's the total of six spell slots. And then once a day, they can cast daylight once at six level or fireball once at six level spell. That's a massive <laughs> fireball. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's wild. You you pointed out that. Sorry, I, I went looking to double check because I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. But the dark vision, like, true sight lets you see in dark vision. It's weird they said dark vision in the yeah, Battle you, Force Angels. You really don't need dark vision when you have true sight, right? It's kind yeah, of that's, that's, that's a weird little editing oversight on their part. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, these guys are also resistant to magic. Uh, not surprising. And they have a special ability called Relentless. What this allows them to do is if they take 21 damage or less, that would reduce it to zero hit points. It's reduced to one hit point instead. So basically, like, like half in the order other to take things. Them, yeah, in order to actually knock them to zero, you have to do more than 21 damage, which at the level you're fighting these guys, that's not going to be too hard to do, but you, don't, you don't want to just kind of whittle them down. You got to hit them I, with the big stuff. I, yeah, I don't know. Everybody, everybody hits with their big, powerful stuff first, right? You're yeah. going to hit with disintegrate and finger death. And by the time that, you know, you get through all 18d8 plus 54 hit points, you're going to be like, firebolt, firebolt, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. this might be a legit issue. No, uh, I, have a, I do have a question regarding that, though. Yeah, go ahead. Is it 21 damage on a single action, like a single attack, or is it a full action? For example, if your fighter unleashes its 30,000 blows that it has, and the, or the monk, it's 6,000 blows, is it the combination of all the blows together or just the one hit? No, it, it doesn't. It, it's the one but hit. The way I would read it is in a single hit. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's the one hit because they every time that they get hit, they take damage, right? Yeah. So that's that's kind of the implication here is that it's off a single hit. That's what I was thinking now, too. That said, I mean, this could go a little skewy for balance, so take it into effect. Unfortunately, this is only good once per rest. So they basically, it, this only kicks off once, and then after that, if you do one damage to them a second time, they go down, right? So it's okay. kind of just one little last yeah, stand. Okay. I, as a DM, I would almost want to make this just a constant ability. I wouldn't have it recharge. And just be aware of that in balance sense, but... Uh, at that point, you've got to raise this... At that point, you got to raise the CR to, like, challenge yeah, rate 14 or so, but by the time yeah, you yeah, challenge rate 14... Up a couple levels, for sure. Yeah, but by then, everybody's doing more than 21 damage a turn anyway. Like, sneak attack and smites are just going to go off in your toast, regardless, exactly. right? Um, as far as attacks, the uh, angel gets two attacks, just like the battlefield angel, battle force angel. Um, a longsword again, uh, plus 10 to hit, doing 1d8 plus 6 slashing damage, and 1d10 plus... Oh, sorry, 1d8 plus 6 single-handed, or 1d10 plus 6 two-handed. It don't have an offhand, so there's really no reason to not go at it two-handed. Um, and then it also does an additional 5d8 fire or radiant damage the angel gets to choose. So that's the stat block there. Um, interestingly, they have a little bonus kind of breakdown for these guys at the end of the stat block. It's about a specific fire main named Nevena, uh, chastised by Aurelia, who is 
I believe the leader of the. Did we discuss Aurelia earlier? Did I no, not that? yet. We're going to. Yeah, we're going, we're going to. to. Excellent. All right. So, chastised by Aurelia after leading a su- successful assault against a group of guildless rebels, Nevena has distanced herself from the Boros Legion's leadership on an independently pursues her own vision of justice and punishment. Nevena's willful independence is a source of tension among the Firemains as well as the upper echelons of the Legion's leadership. How much should a Firemain be free to pursue her own agenda, given that her agenda is right and just? For now, Aurelia has decided to let Nevena have an unprecedented degree of freedom, but if she portrays any hint of corruption, she will quickly be brought back under close scrutiny. So we talked about the alignment being chaotic good. This is kind of the embodiment of that, right? The law is there, but sometimes you need to break a law to enforce the greater law. I think also in regards to the chaotic good, this is whereas the Battle Force Angel was very concerned with my unit moving as one cohesive thing. The fireman angel is like, okay, which one of you is the biggest threat and just therefore has more autonomy to be able to identify threats. And that's also where this insight comes from as well. So I still feel like they're overall lawful good in a lawful good society or guild. However, they're chaotic good in, you know, how they go about targeting their enemies, right? That's right. Yeah, their their ultimate goal is lawful good, but they're willing to inflict a little chaos to get to the... Um, it it feels like the operative in uh, the Serenity movie, um, the Firefly movie. Ah, uh, yes. Was, was like, I am willing to do horrible things to make a perfect society that I know that I will have no place in. Yeah. You know, for the greater good, I'm willing to be a bad guy, right? And like, this just feels like f- for my forces to to be successful, I have got to target the biggest bad here and give them the best chance I can. I, I like to look at it in this sense too, is your party might see them as lawful or put them in that category, but in the eyes of the Boros, they are chaotic. Yeah, that's it, very true as well. Your, your party might consider them lawful, good, but the Boros themselves consider them to be chaotic based on how they look at things. Even with, even with Nevena there, right? Like that last little bit about... Uh, if there's even a hint of corruption. So, you know, as long as she doesn't yeah. break the law. So she's still chaotically going about upholding the law, right? Like, it's it's cool to see a little bit of um, of nuance when it comes to this, this alignment yeah. situation here with these guys. This is why I'm starting to warm up to the idea of seeing typically chaotic good, typically lawful evil in the stat blocks instead of just it saying always or, you know, just right. the standard. Anyway, let's grab dice. Let's roll. I want to talk about these guys. Oh, boy, yeah. 17 for me. I got a big old natural one. I got got an eight. All right, Brad, you're you're the resident expert on the Firemane Angels. Do you have a quest for these guys? Uh, Yeah, these guys are going to be, I imagine they are in the process of hunting down, uh, let's say, a devil, right? A notorious devil. And they are on the tracks. And perhaps your players have either come across evidence of that devil, but haven't been able to track them themselves or they've you know seen them fly by overhead something like that and they are being conscripted to come and assist in the hunting of this devil i i really like these guys i like i like the idea of you know what you know what i would have kind of like on the on the outskirts of society like there's a small trading post with you know there's a there's a population maybe it's a, a fort population of like 70 people right or a very small village with like 10 different families or something there's a fire main angel who is the law and yeah. it doesn't matter if you are guilty or innocent 
Um, if you are accused, it is trial by combat, and you have you have to fight the fire main angel. This is this is something that I would do when you're tier three, tier four party, right? Like, there's never anything good to do with a tier four party. Sure, okay, one on one to prove your innocence against a fire main angel. That's awesome, especially if like she walks up with red hair and she's just like, well, well I'm sorry, we're gonna have to fight. And all the all the townsfolk are like, oh shit! And your partner's like, what's what's the deal with this? What 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 are we doing? Suddenly no, the suddenly her head lights on fire, right? Like, <laughs> I, I and like and wings appear. Like this is this could be fun for me. I I like this. Yeah, I'm gonna take it in a different sense. I'm gonna I'm gonna twist it around a little bit rather than focusing on the one on one battle that they themselves are gonna do. I I want to focus a bit on that chaotic good side uh, again rather than like Nevena did it herself and she kind of had to distance herself all the other fire mains they hire you to do the work instead so that they don't have to distance themselves so that they can kind of still stay in good standing but you're doing that work that they that that's shunned by the other boros but that's what they want to accomplish but they can't necessarily do it themselves because they're bound by various other things so in their mind there's still that that chaotic side but they're being chaotic through the party i like that idea and then they but if they're going to do that they're going to have to wipe out the party to cover their tracks or just turn the whole army against them that's the idea right say they went rogue need to be exterminated now you're going to be on the run i like i actually really like the idea though of they themselves won't exterminate you. It's more so they're going to stage your death, but then somehow mm. you get away. I don't know if they, they would see. go for that. Uh, I... uh, they don't, they, the angels, the Boros Legion specifically, would not, there's no centrifuge with these guys. They would. Yeah, climb. that's true. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I, I like what you're saying, but this is more of a, a rogue, a spy guild kind of movement here, right? Yeah, I would, that's, yeah. I would expect this from like a death pact angel of in like the Orzhov syndicate, if we're going to talk Ravnica, right? Like a, a, maybe not necessarily a fire main angel for the Boros. I just don't think they've got the subtlety. No, they don't. True. Yeah, that's true. Um, Brad, role playing one of these guys. Yeah, they're going to be, uh, again, we're going down the line of the Boros, right? They're, they're going to be confident. They're going to be self-assured and they are going to be willing to self-sacrifice. Um, when we look at the fact that they right, they have compelled duel as one of their skills, it's right in the description. They will take on the mightiest foes head to head, letting the soldiers handle the rest. It's partly due to confidence and just bullishness. But I think it's also in a willingness to understand that they may be sacrificed, but it will allow the rest of the army to succeed. So they are going to be aware of their surroundings, but they're also, you know, they are putting themselves on the front line knowing the danger. They're not stupid. They are courageous and confident. So one of the things that I tend to take inspiration from, especially when it comes to role playing, is the body language provided in the artwork of whatever the monster creature is. And first of all, like I'd like to point out that all of the specific angels in Ravnica are all women. Um, yes. well, they were all they were all men in um, the monster manual. So um I I I do like the idea that she's looking down at you with like a hand on her hip, like in a in a position of power. And whereas I said before that you may not know what a uh, battle force angel like who they're talking to, 
I feel like you get an almost Galadriel sense of being singled out when you're speaking with a Fireman Angel because they've got that insight. They've got the ability to determine who is the biggest threat, to peer past just original or or standard or normal um, uh, body language or how people are presenting themselves. They're able to see the truth of the matter. And I feel like in in the presence of a Fireman Angel, you know when she is looking at you. And I would describe it as such, and not to have any sort of mechanical means for it, but once she turns to look at you, all the hairs on the back of your neck um, stand up, you suddenly become warm and flushed, and that's just the fire, like I'm leaning into the heat uh, aspect of it, and like your heart just starts to pound, right? Like this, per- you, you get the feeling that you cannot hide from them, and that there's no point in lying. The rogue can still lie. Go nuts. But you will get the the initial impulse that oh god I got to tell the truth that she can see me right yeah. Tyler do you have anything for role playing for I will I like to take things in a different sense and I really like how these guys are very proud at least from the sense of they want to seek out the mightiest of any kind of competition that's to do with any kind of combat I just get this picture in my mind of them going into either the troops all gathered together or even a pub or saying, and saying, who wants to challenge me to an arm wrestling competition? And then suddenly it's like, oh dang, their hair lights on fire. And then everyone else backs up and says, no, you know, your barbarian is going to go for it. Exactly. That's what I like. So I'm hoping for. She's got a strength of 22. So uh, good luck. Your 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 barbarian has the ogre gauntlets on. Has a strength of nineteen. Nothing can go wrong here. Brad, do you have any ideas about exploration or clues? Um, again, there's going to be stories. I think rather than going with obvious things, I think wherever she goes, there's a story that's being told about this angel, right? Uh, how they took on this and defeated this enemy single handed. How they were so powerful, and I think that's going to be your clue. You're not going to be following necessarily physical clues. You're going to be following stories. Ards will sing tales. In, in, talk in, the tavern. in in my head, the, this is going to be a weird thing, but I bet she smells like cinnamon. Huh. What? You mean like fireball? Yeah, kind of. Like that, that. That is where my brain went on this. And so, I'm like, when you're sitting there, like trying to find out, let's say, for example, you line up, like, let's say, three beautiful redheaded women, right? And you can't, you need to find out which one is a fireman angel. And like, the way that you do it is by literally smelling them. Because the regular woman will smell like the human woman will, will smell like a human does. The succubus will smell like brimstone and fire. And I'm like, okay, it's not a fiend. What does good fire smell like, right? Interesting. Because I'm just trying to think about it from the, um, because we do that. We do the brimstone and fire that you can smell sulfur when a fiend walks into the room. What do you do with an angel? And I bet it's cinnamon. That was kind of where I was going. Like, what's fireball shots? What's the good fire smell that's not just like barbecued meat, right? Like, what is the good fire smell? I went with cinnamon. That's that's my yeah. that's my that's, clue. Now I'm thinking of a cinnamon on some charred meat. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I think one for me for exploration really quickly would simply be as Brad said, stories. And if you're looking for people who are there, they tend to gravitate attention. People tend to look at them. And when they're looking at you, 
you know it. So that's how that's the exploration right there is you know when they're looking at you or you know who they're looking at because everyone else is looking their way. I love too that they've got more charisma than the bard and more strength yeah. than the barbarian. So yeah. like even the bard is gonna get all like flushed and stuff. And I don't think yeah, a little flustered. I don't think it's like a sexy arousal thing. I think it is no. a it is you have been you are bare, you are vulnerable. They see you, right? And how exposed do you feel in this it, moment? It's a commanding presence and one where you feel completely outclassed. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's right. Um combat tactics for uh for this one brad that isn't just flyby because i mean yeah i mean flyby is there which is interesting and i think that will help in mass combat but the moment that big enemy enters the field i don't think they're doing flyby anymore i think they're standing toe-to-toe with compelled duel right they will be using their guiding bolt on the small things to try and assist the rest of the troops to take out whoever else is there but they will be using you know compelled duel and daylight as kind of a you know cover the field distract everybody so no one else is focusing on me and i can just go toe to toe with the big guy i think right? what so they've got lots of aoe which is really interesting as well right they've got daylight and fireball which are really battlefield control spells they get one of those each but the, the big one is the fact that they have their guiding bolts to help others and then compelling duels to draw the attention to the biggest thing. I, I think the thing that really stands out to me here is, um, well, first of all, does Daylight do damage? I don't think it does. Uh, daylight does I, I, not do damage, no. I think it does damage on undead. I, uh, is that, no, I don't no think that's, it does. that's Moonbeam, right? Oh, yeah. right, yeah. I, I, no, I it's, guess just, the... it's just all it does is create light, basically. Bright light. Yeah, so normally when we see something like this, I mean, with true sight... Because still darkness is really the reason it's there, right? Yeah. That's its primary purpose. Like, she doesn't need to be able to, to cast this to be able to see, because she has true sight. Even in magical darkness, she can see. But yeah. she comes with soldiers. And that's yes, the other thing. That's what it's for. There are soldiers. So daylight will be there to, to help with that. But... I'm looking as far as a battlefield tactic goes, Fireball, see, she's tactical enough. And if I want this CR-12 fight to turn into a CR-15 fight, I save Fireball for the end. I let the soldiers whittle away until my sixth level Fireball will drop a couple of players, right? Because if you hit them early with that sixth level Fireball, then they will have a couple of rounds to heal back up and stay in the fight. But if your soldiers manage to knock everyone down to 60 hit points and you're able to guiding bolt a handful of times at fifth level and end up in a compelled duel and then you drop fireball on, on the players, you may, you may down a couple. There'll be death saves involved, right? And I think that that she would know that. That fireball is being held back to be the thing that ends the combat. I also think that guiding bolt is... Uh, really dangerous because she has that 120 foot fly speed yes so 120 she, feet needs to be taken yep. so yeah that guiding bolt does a, is 120 foot range right so like she'll hit with it and they'll be like oh no there'll be another guiding bolt next turn and then like yeah <laughs> you're you're in trouble like yeah big trouble i think one thing that we, not, we don't want to forget about too is it says right in the the thing that she trusts the lesser people to take care of the lesser enemies She's not going to be worrying about anything that's below where she believes that she needs to be. She's going to take on the most powerful thing, whereas everyone else is going after all the other guys. She's not going to be so con- con- uh, controlling on the battlefield, but rather going straight to the heavy hitter and dealing with it. It's, what's interesting here is how you define the heavy hitter. 
Is it the bear totem barbarian that will stand there and go toe-to-toe with the soldiers, systematically taking them out one at a time? Or is it the evoker in the back? And that is really interesting with her insight and her true sight and the language is all. I, I get the impression that she knows. She will know immediately that a druid, that they're that wild-shaped. Okay, we have battlefield control here. The bard is going to try to charm and shit. All right, I better deal with that. Like, she has all of these resistances and immunities, but her soldiers don't. And so she is going to, as much as, like, before she can close that gap, she is going to, or even when she chooses who she's going to be fighting, she's going to be choosing the person that is going to um, have the biggest impact on the overall battle, not necessarily the biggest guy. No, he's uh, the cause of the most conflict. Who's going to be the hardest uh, on the whole on the whole entire battlefield who's going to be the biggest conflict yeah yeah i don't think this toe-to-toe is meant for fighting you know pcs i think this toe-to-toe is meant for fighting within a big battle right within a war right but i'm here suddenly the big ogre that's being sent versus just the regular goblins or things like that i i think that as well I but i mean by the that. time that you're you know tier three tier four your party is doing overland travel with an airship full of npcs or a pirate ship, or there's a fucking caravan that they're with. Like, the, the your players are rarely still just six mooks dicking about in a dungeon, right, yeah. by by the time that you're tier four. So for her, it would be a small skirmish or a small battle. And, and that in that case, it is the players that's the issue. Also, yeah. I would use her to wipe out that uh, that nefarious ally that, that you're with. Like you've been teaming up with a Yugoloth who you've paid off to help you for a while. She's going to show up and kill that Yugala. Right? 100%. She's not going to put up with that. No. Or it could be uh, it could be someone deceiving your party and you don't even know it. Your party, your party doesn't even know it, and they come along and expose them. Yeah, it's suddenly, you know, the the barbarian's wife that they met back at level four is revealed to be a night hag because a fireman angel slays her, right? Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah, she would see through any disguise. Exactly. Yeah. And then, like, I did you a favor, and then flies the fuck away, right? Like... No conversation afterwards, just you're welcome and leaves. Can you imagine what the party would be doing? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you don't even explain. I guess when you when you kill the hag, it would revert back to its form and everybody would be real surprised. Yeah. I slept uh, with that thing. Uh we have uh one more we have one more creature uh to talk about. Tyler, who you got? All right. So rather than talking different kinds of angels, we're going to talk about one specifically really quickly here. And her name is Aurelia. For what I can tell, it is she's the current war leader of the Boros. Uh, I'll tell you right now, she's a force to be reckoned with. Like all the other angels, it's, you know, the red hair and the massive red wings, armor. Again, she looks like a war leader. Okay, be ready for this, guys. Uh, her CR is a 23. She is uh, pretty high up there. You don't want to be going toe-to-toe with this one. You don't want to be battling her in general, unless you are level 20, and well, good luck even at that point. As for a bit the background on her, one thing I really like about Aurelia is the fact that she is not all about enforcing in the law or just enforcing the law, but she's also very much about the people of Ravnica. She's all about, again, keeping the peace. So 
keeping the letter of the law, yes, but more so keeping the peace and keeping everyone in good relationship, protecting the weak, sheltering in a sense, and making sure that the law itself doesn't become too oppressive. That I'm just like, wow, it's it's pretty fun to see that in a character that this is the this is what you want. This is the leader you want. You want the person that's not just going to be lawful stupid, uh, but the person that's going to actually look at the people and care about them. This is why the, I'm guessing the the people really like her as a leader. And I did some other research on her and tried to look into some other stuff. And it showed her, it showed that um, the previous leader of Boros, uh, whose uh, name was Razia, uh, he was very aloof and commanded things from the back end. Whereas Aurelia, she is very much a frontline fighter. She almost seems like the fire main. Uh, but she commands this respect from everybody, and it, that's that's. I find that very interesting. The that what it was and what it is now, and how everyone loves her leadership style, and kind of goes back to her. Whereas when we look at the stat block on her, we see why she's see uh, her twenty three. Her armor class is twenty two. It's a hefty armor, and the let's just say the average hit points that she has is close to 300. That's the average. But the f- speed is 50 feet on the ground, but 150 feet fly. Okay. That's massive. That's massive. <laughs> You're not keeping up with this, this person. The lowest stat that she has is intelligence at 17. That's the lowest stat. And the highest stat is charisma at 30. That, I'm just like, I don't want to... And everything else is between 25 and 26. That is massive. And again, we see the damage resistances, again, very similar to what we see, necrotic and radiant. Uh, not fire, though. So that's not there. She's resistant. She's immune to poison. She's immune to being charmed or exhausted, frightened, paralyzed, or poisoned. And the true sight, passive perception, the true sight, again, still the same. But that passive perception is now 24. You're not hiding anything from from Aurelia if you thought you could hide it from anyone else. Uh, Now, she also, because of the CR, she has legendary resistances, which we already know. If she fails a saving throw, she can just succeed it. She can do it three times a day. She has that magic resistance. And she she has the longsword strikes, which is, again, kind of slashy slashy, but then gets that additional radiant damage of 68 per hit. Now, this is something that I do like the next two things, because she can do three of these longsword attacks and something called leadership. And essentially, just by uttering some inspiring words to one creature that she can seat within 30 feet, if the person can hear it, they can add a D10 to one attack roll, which is pretty nice. She can do that once every round to a creature, which can it can be pretty hefty every round. Another creature gets another D10 to their attack. But this is something I really like is the ability called War Leader's Helix. It's a ranged attack and it's a recharge on a five or six. But it's essentially, it's a at a 60 foot range. They It's going to be 12d8 radiant damage on one creature. And then she can choose another creature within 10 feet of the target. And they regain an average of 27 hit points or 68. So it damages one. And then if someone's nearby it, they get healed 
for that uh, 68 amount, which is a pretty massive boon. That's some crazy vampiric shit that she's doing there. I like, know. Yeah. I'm just like, whoa, I, I love that because that's it, it, it brings a whole different dynamic to the combat of you think this thing's almost gone, then all of a sudden it gets hit points. What? Is it vampiric or is it just that the spell has two effects? I would read it. It has, two, it has two effects. Two effects. Yeah, yeah, but but, but the effects I know what you mean actually... by you're taking damage, damaging one thing and giving health to another. Yeah. I don't know that's the same effect. And I don't know that you're stealing the health from one and giving it to another, if that makes sense. Uh, I would I, almost right? say that it's you're stealing inter- the life interpretation, force. right? I don't know uh, that yeah. you're stealing it. I think it's just the radiance of the spell has two effects. It has damage on her enemies and healing on her allies. Uh, I mean, that's we're getting pedantic at this point in flavor only, but that's the way I would interpret it. I wouldn't consider it vampirism. I don't think you're stealing the health from the one and giving it to someone else. I think the, the, the reason the reason I uh, look, it's not it's not literal vampirism. However, no, I know what you mean, however, the fact that you're doing 12 d8 damage and healing 68. That's exactly half. I really do feel like this thing is meant to, and it's it's the world leader's helix is what it's called. So yeah, the idea yeah. of that there's two intertwined parts of this, yeah. I'm going to read this as both. The way that I describe this as a DM is uh, both creatures are engulfed in radiant light. The radiant light is burning the life out of one and imbuing the other with that life force. It's That's like a all. transference. Yeah. So it's not truly vampirism. This isn't blood sucking by any means. But it, it's, I would, I would flavor it to be that because I think that's more evocative than, you know, this guy hurts and that guy heals. It's right? like a life transfusion. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Brad. It doesn't feel like super vampire and evil, but this yeah. is definitely something that's going to um, take from one and give to another, but in the name yeah. of, of righteousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and now she has a couple reactions that she has too. She has Perry, which again, she can add, she can add seven to her AC on any attack against her. Uh, she already has a twenty-two AC. Oh, I'm just gonna parry that and add seven to my AC. Okay, well, good luck. And then she has unyielding, which essentially, when if she anything is to knock her prone or knock her back, she can use her reaction to say, "Nope, I ain't going down," or "I ain't being pushed back." And then because Again, CR23, she's also going to get some legendary actions. She has three. One is the command allies. This one I feel is pretty powerful because she can choose up to three creatures that she can see that are within 30 feet of her. They can immediately attack with a weapon attack. They use its own reaction to, to make a weapon attack with advantage. It's not on their turn. It's right then and there. And this only takes one legendary action. So she can command up to three people in a round at any given point after a person's turn to attack, which that's... The thing that makes this so deadly is when you put other angels with her, because it is, oh, just, a, yeah. it is just a melee weapon attack, but then they've, they're have they also doing like radiant or fire damage on their melee weapon attacks. So you're not just dealing out 1d10 or 1d8 or whatever it is. You're dealing out 1d10 and 66, right? Like three times that's fucking wild again this is why she's kind of the commander this is why she's out in front because so that she can use this ability to command her allies what to do or she's even flying above them and commanding what to do 
She can no, she can use two of her legendary actions to do a long sword attack. I'm, I'm gonna be honest. Whoopty freaking do. Oh, okay, sure, fine. Or she can use all three and use uh, frightened foes, which essentially anyone be within thirty feet of her needs to succeed on a DC twenty five wisdom saving throw. Again, good luck. Or they're gonna be frightened of her until the end of her next turn. Now, here's what I consider interesting. Usually when we see something with the frightened effect, we see that whole idea of if you succeed, you're immune for 24 hours. That's not here. So I've I have the sense that even if they succeed the first time, she does it again the next round, they don't have to wait. They're not going to have that 24 hours immunity. It's they are then going to be afraid and any target within five feet of her has disadvantage on this. That for the one of the first times that frightened condition suddenly becomes very real. I like it because that gives off the impression. It's not an aura, but it gives off the impression of the the fear aura that we used to see in previous editions. I'm I'm a fan of this. That's great. Yeah. So that's pretty much all there is for her. But you can see why she's such a hefty person to go against. I would rather be on her side than not. Uh, yeah, this is a campaign. This is a campaign personality, right? Like exactly. She she is not uh, someone that you face off against on that level seventeen. This is your ultimate or penultimate, you know, battle, um, or, or probably or an ally. ally right? I would like say ally, ally. Yeah. Let's let's grab dice um, and let's talk really quickly about uh, how to use this NPC. I got an eight. I got a fifteen. I got a 14. Tyler, you're first. So, do you have a quest, a plot hook, uh, a campaign built around Aurelia? I love this idea of she's the quest giver. I love it that because she wants, more than anything, she wants peace in Ravnica. She cares for the people, that she's sending you out as ambassadors of peace. And if anything, maybe she wants to she wants to kind of recruit you into the Boros Legion. And in order to do that, you must do these things because she is the leader of Boros and has the ability to essentially bring you into the Legion. But in order to be part of it, you need to do this. My thought process with her is that, again, she's driven. She has um, very specific uh, guidelines, the, the way that she lives her life, right? Um, and she is this inspiring leader. But you guys remember in Aladdin where you go into the Cave of Wonders and you're you're allowed to touch nothing but the lamp? I feel like with her, she's going to give you an order and you have to complete that order. Do not get distracted. This is your deadline. Hit it. If you get distracted or do anything else, you will feel her ire. And I feel like this is something that your players can, you know, get all these bonuses or boons or whatever from doing stuff for her. But every time they do it, they've got to be laser focused like the Boros Legion. And this will create, I'm going to give them worse and worse dilemmas the later in the campaign it goes, um, to, so that they have to decide, are they going to face off against Aurelia and her forces, or are they going to commit and double down? Oh, yeah. Brad, what do you got? I'm going to take Aurelia, and I'm going to port her over into the Sword Coast, take her to Ravnica. Because I want to inject her into the blood war, um, right? She has this legion of angels that are fighting in the blood war, trying to push back the devils and the demons who are trying to basically just even out the forces there. Um, and I'm actually going to put her kind of toe-to-toe with uh, Garyon. Oh. Right? Uh, 
right? You've got an incredibly powerful, right? Lawful, evil fiend, uh, devil, who basically these two can go toe to toe, right? They're pretty similar CRs. Um, and basically the quest is to bring news of the battle in the blood war and that Garyon has made an appearance and your job is to come and get Aurelia and bring her to the force and have her fight alongside you to take him and his forces down. I like it. I, I want to take this, I want to take this a, a step further because we have a statted up army um, in um, Baldur's Gate descended to Avernus. Yep. And Zeriel was a angel yep. with very similar stats. Who's actually more powerful than Aurelia but fell and gave into the temptation. And you got to imagine that that pissed off Aurelia oh, more than anything very else. Much. Yeah, I, I know that we're in we're in two different campaign settings for this, but fuck, how good would that battle be? Oh, it would be so good. Yeah. Agreed. And that's why that's why your level 20 heroes need to show up because Zeriel can still whoop Aurelia's ass. Like we still need these heroes. But at this point, too, it's not just Aurelia that's there. It's her whole war band that she has behind her. And yeah. Zarelia as well. And yeah, Zariel's not alone either. So you've got yeah. two armies going head to head. Angel as a DM, on, be prepared. <laughs> angel on angel fights are so much fun. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. Um, what do we have in the way of role playing, Tyler? Again, for her, I'm... I'm not going to treat her so much as a, a loner like the fire main or the com a commander like the the battle angel, uh, but more so I am going to treat her as again that kind of peacekeeper. Um, but at the same time, she knows what the best plan is, and she's going to be meeting with again the the main people who can accomplish this mission and says go do this go do that go do that she's the she's delegating who needs to go where so that the best possible outcome can come come to fruition and that's how i see her is that and, and doing whatever is necessary because it even says in here that if she has to go to arms to do what is necessary to keep the peace she will do that she is not afraid to do that um and I think you even said, yeah, her, that her temper is legendary. So she will get angry. It's not a matter of, oh, it's okay. You tried. No, it is legendary anger that she has. So you you better not fuck up. My my reading on this, on her stats alone, is you guys know she has no spells. I noticed no spell that. Casting. Yeah. You're right. So she is purely martial. Um, and I mean, the warrior's helix is, you know, magic-y, and she has yeah, magical It's technically resistance. a rain spell attack, but that's her only spell. Yeah, right? So and, so there's no, like, big spell casting here. She doesn't need to have a, a focus of any kind. Like, she's she is there to be the general. Um, and I get yeah. the impression, like, her intelligence, you, you say, like, she knows the right tactics and stuff. Her intelligence is high, but your wizard can will beat her at chess, right? Yeah. The charisma and the wisdom, though, lead me to think <laughs> that that she is so successful at leading the Boros Legion because, as angry as she gets, I think she's a politician. She yes. is a she's a warlord, but also a politician. I think at the moment she's behind closed doors, she'll rage out and smash the the desk to pieces. But like, it's she very much is going to know the right way to do things and be able to control herself. But she will get angry. And if you piss her off, she will have you executed. This is, it's still life and death. 
but the stakes are so high for her and she's looking at big picture because again, she's immortal, right? And that's the other thing about these angels. They don't have a lifespan. Their, no. their schemes and plots, their goals last eons and they're beyond what mortals can understand. So while they have an immediate need for things, she is also looking at the big picture here and she is trying to keep 10 guilds, the entire population of Ravnica, you know, safe. That's such an undertaking. I bet that she, like, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? Like, I bet she shoulders that weight every single day and says, I will take it because I can handle it. Yeah. Nobody else gets to, right? Absolutely. Yeah, as the leader of the Boros, right? She is not just dealing in the day-to-day -day of the Boros. She is dealing with all of the other clans. She's dealing with all of the things that are going on in the world around her, right? She will be at all the heads of whatever meetings. Exactly. She'll be summoned to heads of state. She will be constantly being sought after. She's also, she's a good guy, but yeah. if you cross her, justice will be swift. Yes. And like, this is not a trial that's going to last six months. No, her judgment is final. And yeah, this is a conversation. And then and then we determine what the answer is. The end, right? I bet she has no fucking patience for the Azorius Senate or the Orzhov Syndicate who are sitting there making laws and wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. Like, I bet that shit just must piss her right off. Uh, so, there's actually a quote in the book uh, that says, um, true justice, Aurelia argues, isn't merely the enforcement of the letter of existing laws and then in brackets, it says, let the Azorius fret over that. And then in brackets, but the establishment of equitable and compassionate relationships among all the Ravnica people. So yeah, she she does not care about the uh, Azorius. I, I I love this. What an interesting character for, for an angel, right? I know. Uh, I love it. Uh, what do we have... Uh, Brad, did we cover yours for roll? Yeah, no, we're good. I think we've covered everything there. Let's move. Uh, all right, Tyler, uh, exploration or clues? I would say definitely uh, the fact that she is in control. That she, as you said, she is a politician. You know where she is because she makes herself known. She is not hiding in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but again, I almost see her in one sense, uh, this idea of, you know that she's there, or if you're in a different part of the realm, you know that she has been there, or you know that she has influence there. Because again, it's not hidden, and you know that it's meant for good. Why our flags? Because that will let people know this is a safe place to be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my big thing about her is that you're never going to find her skulking around in the dark, right? You're not even going to find her on a throne or in an office, she yeah. is in the war room looking at maps, or she is in a meeting with the Senate, or she is talking to a general, uh, you know, like a minotaur general uh, for the Boros Legion is coming to talk to her. And she is like pouring the wine for him. She's got an honor guard, but she's and like, I don't think she wants for anything. She's not, she's probably rich as fuck because of the Boros Legion, but she doesn't flaunt it. She doesn't need it. She doesn't sleep. She, I don't think she even really cares about wealth. No, she just no. has it as a resource. It's not that it's something that she desires yeah. or it's it's something that she can use to benefit the kingdom. Exactly, and so um, and also to encourage her her followers as well, right? Like, yeah. I mean, this is a job for people too, and so um, the like the idea here is that you are going to go to her. She doesn't come to you, and she is going to be surrounded by tough 
capable people. Um, usually the smartest people. I bet that she's one of these people that knows that the best leader is the one who surrounds themselves with smart people. Right? They're going to yeah, be that's... smart. They're going to be tactic, like tacticians. They're going to be strategists. They're going to be politicians. Um, and they're going to be generals. But they're all going to be pointed at the same thing. And that is upholding the damn law. Um, I, I I think for her, that might even be a little bit more far reaching than just, you know, being a police force. But I think she would understand the need to, like, give people the sense of being safe. It's Hope. not just enough to lock up the criminal. You need to let the population know that there is no more crime. Like, yeah, so absolutely. That there might be like an eye on the pageantry of it. A little bit, but not it. That's not the the purpose of it. It's not the be all end all of what she's trying to do. Like, yeah. um, she, I, I see her at the politician side saying, "I will fight for you." Yes, and then like legitimately will draw a sword. Yeah, exactly, and be on the front lines. Brad, what do you got for exploration or clues? Um, yeah, I'm just gonna piggyback off what you were saying about her being surrounded by people. I'm gonna say that the exploration is just gonna be the challenge of actually getting a face to face meeting with her. <laughs> right. right? She is either in combat or in the throes of the world of politics and everything else. But the ultimate challenge is going to be actually proving that you are worthy of FaceTime with her and that you, what you have to offer is actually something of value to her and not just, oh, yeah, I could get that from any of the 20 people I have in this room right now. Oh, exactly. Tyler, what do you have in the way of combat tactics? Well, she's a frontline, she's a frontline combatant. So if it's ever in combat she's it literally says that's what she is is on the front line the previous leader was always in the back row and commanding she's in the front line with her troops in fact if not the first one into the fray and that's the other thing too with combat she's not going to be alone she's going to have the whole host behind her so uh if you are going against her you better be having a whole host of your own or you be part of her host going against whatever it is. If and I that's the be, biggest thing. If I can be perfectly honest, looking at this stat block, this is another one of these stat blocks that I feel is impossible to use. It is. It really is, honestly. And that's why I, I, I want to look at this more of a, uh, in not an exploration standpoint, but is she's part of the battle map. Yeah, and that's just it. When I'm looking at this stat block, what I'm seeing is, you know, command allies and whatnot, and the war leader's helix and leadership She's supposed to have, like, she is so powerful because she boosts up everyone else around her. It's battlefield control. Exactly. She also frightens foes, so she's supposed to be against a large number of people as well. This is not a question of how good is her stat block. The question is how good is the action economy, right? And when we get to that level of action economy, because she is outside of the concept of the bounded accuracy of 5th edition. Her stats are too high, yeah. right? You can knock her down, but and she's not going to be able to heal, but she's going to parry. She's got 22 AC, but a reaction to bump that to 29? Yeah. Fuck off. Like, that's just, it, <laughs> it, it's, <No>. so, <laughs> it's so much that it's it's going to take five or six different um, forces on the battlefield. I don't just mean players. I mean, like, you're going to need to have an entire action economy in your favor to fight her, but you're never going to find her alone in the first place. So... Every round is going to take 48 minutes to fucking get through at the table, right? This is so unwieldy that my suggestion is to never, ever, ever use her as a monster in a fight. That being yeah. said, your players are fucky. They're going to hit level 20. They're going to want to take over the Boros Legion or whatever it is. They've come to blows with Aurelia. She's 
declared a bounty on their head, whatever it is, they're going to get her alone somehow and fight her. And if that comes up, she's going to leave. Yeah. 150 foot floor, not the battle. And that's what she's all about. Exactly. So as much as she's unyielding and she won't back down, her leaving is not backing down. Her leaving is mustering enough forces to squash this threat once and for all. It's a tactical retreat. She's not going to run away and hide from you forever. She's going to run away, collect what she needs, and come back. Exactly. That's what her frightened foes is about, too. Managing the enemies that are in her face. So that's that's very much what I see here. Um, Again, yeah. It's very much the background. Like, if you're going against Zariel, uh, it's... You, they're going against each other in the background. You're just taking care of all the other monsters. Yeah. Uh, Brad, do you have any combat tactics? Yeah. No, I was just going to go on the same boat of, like, she is a set piece. She is not really... You're going to just... I wouldn't bother playing with her stat block at all. I would just have her be part of the storytelling if she goes into battle at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I can be honest, I'm going to look at some of the stuff she has, like ranged spell attacks on a 5 and 6, or, you know, the command allies. And these are just... In this area over here, this tag, this thing is going to happen. Yeah, you notice that. Hey, the fight warriors under Ariel or Aurelia are like, are feeling bolstered. They are fighting back the enemy with extreme force and prejudice. I'm almost using her like layer actions at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So anyway, um, before we wrap up this episode, let's cut to our last ad break. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit, r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes, and comments. Engagements like that help us pop up on search engines and keep this show running. So as we are thinking about the the boros and the angels and all the different npcs we want to be thinking again the overall idea of what they are for is this idea of again lawful good and the ability to kind of put forward there what they think is lawful good and that they stand by it there's really no convincing them it's they're a force with a one track train they go for it and so Really think about how are your players going to be dealing with this. As a DM, think ahead of time what these guys are going to be in your campaign because you're going to have to try and think how is your party going to react to them and knowing that if they react too badly, it's not necessarily going to go well for them. Your murder hobos are in real danger. Yes, they are. Yes. So that's all for this discussion on the Boros Legion. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Thank you for listening to the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Yes. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits, and don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations.
right, the pod, uh, the post credit now. We want to do a nice twenty minute long post credit. I have got to go into the office tomorrow, so I'm up at five. So hey, me too. I, I'm up at five as well. So yay, uh, that's like all the same. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm getting- I, I'm going to uh, end this call so that it's going to save. It takes like half an hour to wind down and save on this computer. All right. Good. Um, well, good night, guys. Yep. Thanks oh, a lot, guys. You anything? You're welcome. Good night, guys. Have a good time. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>